Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 8. I'm tempted to get into a lot of things about Alexander's biography. There's a lot of uh, uh, oriental intrigue in all of this, but I'm not going to get into that uh, except to make, to, to quote a kind of summary comment that's apropos of what we're thinking about. And that is from Browdy. He says, quote, Many of Alexander's actions, particularly in his early career, seem to spring from a feeling of tenuous legitimacy that he transforms into a drive for superhuman achievement, end quote. There you have the whole ontological problem. A sense or feeling of tenuous legitimacy transformed into a drive for superhuman achievement. Now, you could get a Freudian analysis of that and so on. Um, But if you think of the modern situation, modern philosophy spent most of this century, the first part of this century, wringing its hands about the question of angst. What is angst? The problem of angst. And then more recently... It's the problem of authenticity. You see, it's the ontological problem, a, 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 a feeling of, to use Browdy's words about Alexander, a feeling of tenuous legitimacy. What does Henri de Lubac talk about? The waning of ontological density, Gabriel Marcel, the lack of ontological moorings. It's it's a fundamental modern problem, and. Alexander is a distant mirror for us. Browdy says of of Alexander the following, quote, For Alexander, as for all who live... Now, for all Alexander's assertion of uniqueness, it's perfectly clear from the historical record that he was explicitly imitating his whole life. And so Browdy says, for Alexander, as for all who live a life in public, and I would strike that qualifying clause as irrelevant because it's true for everybody. But in any event, this is how Browdy puts it. For Alexander, as for all who live a life in public, the crucial question is less who he was than who he was like. And there you have the whole Pauline question. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, the imitation of Christ, and so on. And then Browdy says, throughout his career, Alexander's achievements are inextricably tied to the way he understood the actions and characters of the heroes and gods he admired and emulated. And so this is, this is being said of the quintessentially unique man, Alexander the Great. His whole life was imitation, emulation, strict imitation and emulation, as a matter of fact. What was the main source of his imitation? So this is like going back to uh, Don Quixote. Don Quixote's fascination was with Amadis de Gaulle, the, the fictional 
character. Modest de Gaulle was a fictional character. Uh, but Don Quixote had read about him in all of these tales of, of uh, chivalry. And so he was totally taken by him. He was, in that sense, he was Don Quixote's lord. And all Don Quixote tried to do is go be just like him. And that's all that Alexander tried to do. Same thing. His book was the Iliad. Quoting Browdy, Plutarch called the Iliad and the Odyssey Alexander's equipment, quote-unquote, equipment, as essential to his triumphs as his soldiers and more conventional weapons. On all his campaigns, it is said, he carried with him a copy of the Iliad especially annotated for him by Aristotle. So that was his manual. That was his text for how to live. Now, I want to come to Robespierre later on. This seems totally absurd. By the way, I have given up on structuring any of these sessions. I had this idea that they would be structured and they would, we'd have a little section, little thing here about anthropology and then we'd just nice to turn the page and then we'd talk about ontology. You can't, I find, you can't talk about one without the other and you can't talk about the past without the present and you can't talk about the... Anyway, everything just blurs and so it's, it's going to be collage from now on, just collage. Uh, I can't do it otherwise. So, believe it or not, I hope if there's time I want to say a thing or two about Robespierre. But Robespierre carried around his copy of Rousseau. <laughs> you see what I mean? Everybody's got the copy of something. So what is it? That's the question. And this is why, fundamentally, the book, another thing Browdy says about Alexander is, quote, I want to stress strongly the bookish way Alexander viewed himself and his world. That's exactly what you would say about Don Quixote. You see what I mean? And it's exactly what you would say about all biblical people. You see? What is the bookish way? The bookish way is to have a story of those who have, who have lived this most completely as an example of how to live. Why do you want to have a book? Because then you have a story of someone who's not in your immediate environment. Now, Don Quixote's mistake was he picked somebody who was just, just like him, and so did Alexander. But nevertheless, the book provides you with an image that isn't a graven image. You see what I mean? Uh, so it's not the same. It can be the source of idolatry, but it can also bigger than that. In any event, so there you have it. Now, let's go to the business of the, the role of the Iliad in shaping Alexander. Alexander's great military campaign was against Persia when he conquered the Persian Empire. And Browdy says this, quote, Since Agamemnon, a thousand years before, Alexander was the first Greek to lead an army against Asia. With self-conscious restaging, he went out of his way to lift anchor at Aeolus, the same place where, according to tradition, Agamemnon's fleet set sail to conquer Troy. In other words, he's following the pattern exactly. The gesture 
continuing to quote Browdy, the gesture meant something both to the army Alexander led and to Alexander himself. Landing on the other side, Alexander immediately went to the site of Troy, where he laid a wreath on the tomb of Achilles. He sent his lifelong friend, Hephaestion, to do the same thing at the grave of Patroclus, the friend of Achilles. And you know in the Iliad, the relationship between Achilles and his younger friend Patroclus is essential to the dynamic of the, of the, of the story. And Alexander had exactly that same relationship to Hephaestion, his, his younger lieutenant. And so the whole thing is choreographed to be another version of the, of the Greek conquest of Troy. And Browdy says, quote, the Homeric holy war against the Persians had begun. Now notice that just too many things to talk about here, but I have to just throw, throw one little thing in as an echo of what we talked about a few weeks ago. Remember the scene that's captured in Robert Kaplan's book, The Balkan Ghost, of the Serbian uh, commander going to the play, the Kosovo Polji, the place where the Serbian leader had been defeated 600 years before, and giving this rousing speech saying, they'll never do that to you again. And a year later, the coffin of this, the exhumed coffin of this, uh, this Serbian leader that had died 600 years before, quote, began a year-long pilgrimage through every village in Serbia, followed by multitudes of sobbing mourners dressed in black in each town, end quote. In other words, it's the same paradigm. It's going back to the last war and blowing on the embers until it flames up again and you have the, the pattern and the energy for the next one. In other words, what we're doing here, folks, is not something new and it's, not, it's something that comes out of this tremendous historical imperative. It's not just something petty and greedy that we're doing, you see. Anyway, I'm not beneath using tiny little footnotes as an excuse to go off on a tangent. And there's a little footnote in Browdy, which I think is fascinating, and it really relates back to Alexander's fascination for Diogenes, I think. And the footnote reads as follows. According to Plutarch, Alexander also wanted to play the lyre of Achilles, perhaps as Achilles himself is playing it, when, as Homer describes it, he receives Odysseus and others into his tent on the embassy to persuade him to return to the battle. End quote. Now, you know this scene in the, in the Iliad is when Achilles, who has walked away from it all because he's become rivalrous with the commander-in-chief Agamemnon, and he goes and sulks in his tent, and all his very powerful uh, colleagues, the uh, Myrmidons, are sitting out the war. And without them, the Greek, uh, the, the Greek effort is, is severely handicapped. And so Achilles sits there twiddling his thumbs, playing his lyre, knowing that he is in their mind's eye. You see, he can be... This is, again, here's the question. This is, this is the very beginning of Rousseau. This is ostentatious nonchalance. You see, knowing that he's in their mind's eye, he doesn't need to be in their physical eye. And that's the way Rousseau was. Knowing that he, everybody in Europe was thinking, wonder what Rousseau's doing, he didn't have to be in front of them. 
He could go off by himself, you see. And as a matter of fact, exhibit his disinterest in whatever they were thinking. Because the more he exhibited that disinterest, the more interesting, the more interested they became. Just like Alexander and Diogenes. So anyway, the point of this is, if Plutarch is right, that Alexander wanted to play the lyre of Achilles, it means that he had this this itch, like the itch to be like Diogenes, to somehow be out of it, but still at the center of all the attention. So that he didn't have to actually go through all the effort to conquer the world. He could just be seen as the one who could if he wanted to. <laughs> or something like that. Okay. I, like I say, this is a... The, so one... In, I said this, but I want to say it again. This is the beginning of what Rousseau develops so powerfully later on in, uh, in the 18th century, which is this notion of of uh, the recluse who's the focus of all attention. What I want to do with this, however, I mean, this is how what happens to me. It made me think of the scene in the Iliad, and I started thinking about that, and that made me think of the corresponding scene in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, because Shakespeare, Shakespeare didn't read Homer. Shakespeare read secondary sources. But Shakespeare, even though he was reading secondary sources, read Homer better than Homer did and far better than Alexander did. So I I thought, we should just go back to this one little scene in Shakespeare's Trollus and Cressida, if you'll tolerate it, because you get a master commenting on this stuff. And Shakespeare was a master. His whole theatrical enterprise was driven by his brilliant insight into this whole mechanism. And so I'm just using this footnote as an excuse to get into Shakespeare for just just a minute. Just a couple of little sections uh, in Shakespeare I want to talk about. And it has to do with ostentatious nonchalance. Shakespeare knows this is the key to everything. Girard argues that, that the novelistic impulse, and he's not the only one, a lot of people have said you know, the novel only develops in the Western world. Uh, the novel is a story about people who are screwed up and who are either trying to bumble through or figure it out. And that only, that's, that's a Western story. That's the story of, of fallen humanity, dealing with its fallenness and, and groping with it. And so there are, as Gerard says, there are novels that romanticize and cover up the real mechanism. And there are novels that reveal the, the, me- the mechanism. And they are, he calls one romantic and the other Romanesque. In the, written, in the real novelistic sense, the real novelistic art is Romanesque. It reveals it uh, so, you can, so you don't fall into some kind of romantic swoon about it. Anyway, how did I get off on that? Shakespeare is in that genre because he reveals it explicitly. So I just want to do this little section from Troilus and Cressida because it has to do with Odysseus coming to appeal to Ulysses to join the Greeks again so that they can defeat the Trojans. In the, in the Latin version or the Roman version of the story, of course, Odysseus is Ulysses. Ulysses is the, is the Roman name 
uh, or the Latin name for Odysseus. So here's the scene. Now, first of all, just to put it in the context of Shakespearean insight, this is, comes from a play, Trollus and Cressida, in which two things are going on. Uh, the larger problem, which is the war between the Greeks and the Trojans, having to do with Helen and Menelaus and Paris, and then the sub-problem, which is the tension between Agamemnon and Achilles, which has caused dissension within the Greek camp. They're mirrors of each other. They're mirrors of each other in Homer, of course, and Shakespeare, they're also mirrors of each other. But in Shakespeare, he sees that at the heart of each of them is the whole mimetic game. And so Shakespeare adds another little touch, and that is the relationship between Trollus and Cressida as a way of, as a way of seeing the whole thing. And uh, Pandarus, who's the, who's the one who is the choreographer of desire, Pandarus explains to um, Cressida that if she's going to win Troilus's ardor, she's going to fire Troilus's ardor, she has to exhibit ostentatiously her nonchalance. And every 15-year-old in the Western world now knows that, you know. But it, it's, we've been, we didn't learn it just yesterday. It's been slow in coming. Uh, but Shakespeare certainly understood that, and he says it explicitly. So Pandora says, look, you've got to be coy. You've got to make it seem that you don't, you don't really care. You've got eyes for others, da-da-da-da, uh, and he'll go nuts because the idea that there's another that he might have to compete with for your affection, that's the key to this whole thing. Here's what he does with Ulysses and, uh, and Achilles. Achilles is sitting in his tent, sulking, knowing that he's in everybody's thoughts. And Ulysses is always thinking up how to solve the problem. Ulysses, in both Shakespeare and in Homer, is the crafty one who always knows how to win by some kind of stratagem. And so Ulysses figures out how to solve the problem. And he's talking to his fellow Greeks. And he says, Achilles stands in the entrance of his tent. Please let our general pass strangely by him as if he were forgot. And princes all lay negligent and loose regard upon him. I will come last. Tis like you'll question me why such unplausive eyes are bent, why turned on him. If so, I have derision medicinable to use between your strangeness and his pride, which his own will shall have desire to drink. Just walk by as if you don't care. Now, here's what, as they do this, here's what Achilles says. This is a little seminar within a seminar on Shakespeare's brilliant insight into this whole business. Here's what Achilles says which is his way of making perfectly explicit so nobody misses the point, what's at issue, which is nothing. Achilles says, What? Am I poor of late? Not a man for being simply man has any honor, but honor for those honors that are without him as place, riches, and favor, prizes of accident as oft as merit, which when they fall as being slippery standers, the love that leaned on them as slippery too, doth one pluck down another and together die in the fall. 
In other words, he's saying, I know that these, that these things I have acquired, these, these weapons, this shield, this armor, these men, this prestige, all, this power, etc., these are slippery standards. I know that. And they can get away from you and then you don't have any. He says, I, I understand that. Understand the game. He's, he thinks he understands the game, but he only understands it at the level of checkers. He doesn't understand it at the level of chess. <laughs> and so, because he's a, he's, a, he's a Percival, you know, he's a simple-minded guy. <laughs> but Ulysses, and behind Ulysses is Shakespeare, he understands the intricacies of it. So, anyway, so Achilles says, so I know that sometimes these things, you can lose them, and lose the, the, all the admiration that comes with it. But, he says, "'Tis not so with me. Fortune and I are friends. I do enjoy at ample point all that I did possess." Now, this is Shakespeare making it explicit. We, of course, know that. So why are we being told that? So that we'll understand that nothing has changed in the material order. Here's what Achilles says. But tis not so with me. Fortune and I are friends. I do enjoy at ample point all that I possess save these men's looks. That's the only thing that has changed. They walked by me and didn't look at me. That's it. Nothing has changed. And all of a sudden he is crestfallen. <laughs> He's still the most powerful guy. He still has the most loyal army. He still has all the power. He still has his shield and his da-da-da-da-da but he doesn't have their looks. And then he sees Ulysses. How now, Ulysses, what are you reading? And Ulysses says, strange fellow here writes me, and then he starts to quote, strange, what are you reading? Strange fellow here writes me, and this is, this is a Shakespearean signature if I've ever seen it. Strange fellow here writes me? Who's writing Ulysses at that moment? It's Shakespeare. In other words, Ulysses is reading Shakespeare's insight into this whole thing and sharing it with, with Achilles. So, strange fellow here writes me, quote, that man, how dearly ever parted, parted here means uh, proportion or what he has, his, his share of things, that, quote, that man how dearly ever parted, how much in having, or without, or in, cannot make boast to have that which he hath, nor feels not what he owes, but by reflection. As when his virtues shining upon others heat them, and they retort that heat again to the first giver. In other words, only desire makes something desirable. You see, that's it, to put it in Girardian terms. And if desire is not there, no inherent worth will make it desirable. And Achilles, again, he's at the checkers level of all this. He's very flat-footed. He says, oh, th that's not strange at all. That's, we understand that because we can't see ourselves. Somebody else has to see us and so on. So just in, at the objective level, obviously we can't see ourselves. He doesn't get it. He says, "'Tis not strange at all.'" And Ulysses says, 
I do not strain at the position, it is familiar, but at the author's drift, Shakespearean signature again, but at the author's drift. What is this? This is Shakespeare is so wonderfully playful. At the author's drift, who in his circumstance expressly proves that no man is the Lord of anything though in and out of him there be much consisting, till he communicate his parts to others. Nor doth he of himself know them for aught, till he behold them formed in the applause where they are extended. In other words, he doesn't even value them himself until they're applauded and seen through the desirous eyes of others. He doesn't know what they're worth until he sees other people attributing worth to them. And then Ulysses says, I was much wrapped in this and apprehended here immediately the unknown Ajax. Now, Pandarus had said to, to Cressida, look, you just show, show eyes for others. All, this is the advice always given to lovers in Shakespeare's plays. Uh, make sure you look, look as though you were interested in somebody else. You know, That'll get things going. So Ulysses begins to talk about Ajax. Now Ajax is your quintessential jock. He's he's Percival at the end of the bench, you know. He he he's huge and powerful, and that's it. There's a did you ever see the Robin Williams movie? This is dumb. Did you ever see the Robin Williams movie Popeye? Oh, you should see it. It's absolutely fabulous. <laughs> that's absolutely fabulous. Anyway, Olive Oil is about to marry that the big lunk. I forget what his name is. Hmm? Pluto. Olive Oil is about to marry Pluto, and she sings this song. <laughs> he's mine and he's large. <laughs> that's all she can say. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of what you can say about Ajax. So, so Ulysses is saying, I was reading this about how it's all depending on what, how, how other people look at it. And then I started thinking about Ajax. Heavens, what a man is there, a very horse that has he knows not what. In other words, a, a jock who doesn't understand what's going on. Nature, what things are most abject in regard and dear in use. What things, again, most dear in the esteem and poor in worth. This is a little complicated, but it's just what we've said before. He can be well endowed and, and and the object of no observation and be worthless, or he can be the object of all kinds of esteem and not have any inherent worth and still be considered so. And then he says, uh, Now shall we see tomorrow an act that very chance doth throw upon him, Ajax renowned, to see these Grecian lords, why even already they clap the lubber Ajax on the shoulder, as if his foot were on brave Hector's breast and great Troy shrieking. For honor travels in a strait so narrow where one but goes abreast. In other words, he's saying Ajax is going to become the one that all the adulation is going to. And so now he gives a little, uh, he gives a little warning to, to Achilles. Keep then the path. The path, he says, is narrow. Only one gets through. Keep then the path, for emulation hath a thousand sons that one by one pursue. 
If you give way or hedge aside from the direct forthright, like to an in, like to an entered tide, they all rush by and leave you hindmost. Or like a gallant horse fallen in the first rank, lie there for pavement to the abject rear or run and trampled on. Well, let me do it this way. Before I read this next section, let me go back to something I shared from Browdy last week. Browdy says, talking about artistic fame of the 20th century, he says, to be on stage is to wonder what to do for an encore. There, the professional assertion is met with the audience response, namely, what have you done recently? (laughs) There's no let up. You think, well, hey, listen, I got it. I can quit now. No, you suddenly say, well, it's a demand. Let's see some more. It's got to be better. It's got to be more recent. And then you really see this audience thing is serious business because what if you don't? Well, it becomes surly. I got into that last week. So here's what Ulysses, parentheses, Shakespeare says. Then what they do in present, though less than yours in past, must, this is what happens if the, if you, if you rest, step out of the way and let the others pass you up. What they do in present, though less than yours in past, must or top yours, for time is like a fashionable host that slightly shakes the parting guest by hand and with his arms outstretched as he would fly, grasp the comer. The welcome ever smiles and farewell goes out sighing. In other words, fashion. There's, they, they'll be on to a new one tomorrow. Ajax will be it, and you'll be a has-been, you see, if you don't play this game. And so the last little, last little comment here, uh, which sums up the whole thing, and uh, this is a play within a play, what I'm doing. This is a seminar within a seminar, but nevertheless. Uh, it's ap- perfectly apropos of the t- topic that we're talking about. Ulysses then says, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin, which is what he means there is that, is that in one respect we're all exactly alike. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin that all with one consent praise newborn gods, which is a symptom of, of the onset of modernity. Always looking for, because the dissatisfaction with what is. You see, the chronic dissatisfaction that has its roots in in the lack of ontological mooring. There's always this search for something new, you know. And maybe there is a toothpaste that will actually work better. <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> or whatever. So, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin that all with one consent praise newborn gods. Though they are made and molded of things past, and give to dust that is a little guilt more laud than guilt or dusted. You have to unpack that, but that's really wonderful. Give to dust that is a little guilt, mainly a, dust here carries the Christian connotation of from dust to dust, you see. The dust that's meaningless. It's absolutely, you know, uh, shot through with this mortality and it's 15-minuteness. You know, <laughs> to use the Andy Warhol thing. And to give to dust that is a little guilt, that's gilded just enough to flash for a second, as Donovan Leach says. You know. Then to give to that 
more laud than gilt or dusted than that which is that that which has been gold gilded with that has gathered just a little bit of dust it's a marvelous metaphor and then he says the present eye praises the present object now speaking to uh, achilles he says then marvel not thou great and complete man that all the greeks begin to worship ajax since Things in motion sooner catch the eye than what stirs not. This is a fishing metaphor, you know. It's the spinner. You put something in that does a little flashing in the water, and they go for it. It's that superficial, you see. Things in motion sooner catch the eye than what stirs not. The cry, he says, was once on thee. The acclaim was once on thee. And now it's about to go to Ajax. Well, I... I don't know. I just got into that because I love it and I, I wanted to do it and the footnote gave me an entree into it, so I, I, I did that. Uh, but it's apropos to the, the distant mirror of, of Alexander, I think. Browdy says, quote, what happens when there turns out to be too many Alexanders? <laughs> That's the modern world, you see. That's the modern world. That's talked about that last week, the democratization of this phenomenon. I mean, then, you see, it's like the old grade B westerns, you know, there's not enough room in this town for both of us. Well, what if there's a million of us? <laughs> you see what I mean? That's the, that's the problem. So, back to Browdy's reflections much later in his book, on the insights of Tocqueville in Democracy in America. So, and Browdy paraphrases Tocqueville. He says, quote, Aristocratic societies, Tocqueville wrote, have a fixedness of social position that allows everyone to know who he is. There again, you have the relationship between the old hierarchical structure and the ontology that it supplied or supported so aristocratic societies, wrote Tocqueville, have a fixedness of social position that allows everyone to know who he is. And when they're working, not to be envious, not to feel that someone who is above him in the social hierarchy is, for that reason, an insult. You see what I mean? To see one's position so that one's ontological status is in no way compromised by one's by one's relatively menial social status. Whereas once the hierarchy is gone and once the sense of transcendence that gives that ontological status its validity, once that's removed, then the, the inequality in the social hierarchy becomes scandalous because it is an immediate affront or it undermines my ontology, my ontological sense, my sense of who I am. So Brady goes on still still paraphrasing Tocqueville. Democratic societies with their freedom of social movement engender the need to be bold and arresting. Alexandrian need, you could almost say. Democratic man, Tocqueville said, usually had no lofty ambitions. He just wanted to be first at anything. I quoted that earlier in the session. And that's like the Guinness Book of Records. You know, or, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Browdy goes on, in a world where constant change was possible, 
the aim was to be singled out of the general equality and made permanent whatever the cost. Now, you notice the language here. To be singled out is to be is unique, but to be separated from the social uh, unit and to be made permanent, that's really the longing for some kind of substantiality. You know, it's the... It's the lack of ontological density, lack of ontological mooring that, get, that uh, fires this need to, to make ourselves permanent. Or the, another aspect of the whole fame thing is to, is to uh, be remembered. I, I want to come back to that in, in later weeks. Um, but the point I really want to notice before we go on is this idea that one has to do something, anything, to single oneself out from the general equality. Now, this is nothing more than the Enlightenment backfiring because the whole Enlightenment project was premised on the notion that everything that's wrong with the world is wrong because of inequality and that if we eliminated inequality, then all the problems would be solved. Now, I've said over and over again that the Enlightenment secularized a Christian moral ethos. In order to gauge the, the uh, decline that that secularization process involved, it involved some good things too, but there was a decline. In order to engage, one of, one of the ways to, to measure that decline is to notice the difference between the Christian notion of brotherhood and the Enlightenment notion of equality. There's a huge difference between them. And so when the Enlightenment insisted that all our problems have to do with the lack of equality, with the existence of inequality, that was simply what happens when you take the notion of Christian brotherhood and flip it into its secular manifestation. Well, okay, so now the problem is inequality. Let's get rid of inequality. And here we have Browdy saying, now the aim is for everyone to try to be singled out of the general equality. The general equality becomes the problem. And that's just, again, back to Shakespeare. It's just the way it is in Shakespeare. Every time there's an equality developed, the rivalry immediately springs up. And Gerard has some things about this, and I'll uh, share one with you. I've probably shared this with you before. Uh, but he puts it this way. Modern people still fondly imagine, that's because we're... we're heirs still of this enlightenment bias. Modern people still fondly imagine that their discomfort and, and unease is a product of the straitjacket that religious taboos, cultural prohibitions, and in our day even the legal forms of protection guaranteed by the judiciary system place upon desire. In other words, you see, they think the, our dissatisfaction has to do with these, with the fact of these these structures that somehow bracket our desire. They, modern people, Gerard says, think that once this confinement is over, desire will be able to blossom forth. Its wonderful innocence will finally be able to bear fruit. And this is the way the Enlightenment treated any. Quality. If inequality could be dispensed with, if we could all be equal, everything would be fine. None of this comes true, Gerard writes, 
quote, the more people think they are realizing the utopias dreamed up by their desire, the more they will in fact be working to reinforce the competitive world that is stifling them. And all of that is implicit in this idea that one must be singled out of the general equality. You see, the struggle for some kind of distinction, even if it's just the way one flicks the back of one's neck, you see, as in Virginia Woolf. All right. In the last session, I used Alexander the Great as a distant mirror to think about the problem of fame and the ontological problem that it represents in the modern world. And I went back to some things that, that uh, Leo Browdy said about Alexander the Great. Uh, and from there I went into Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida and talked about a few things. But what Browdy said, which was most important, and I tried to emphasize it about uh, Alexander the Great is that he was the world's first famous person and that nothing was ever satisfying. Nothing was ever enough for him. Uh, and, and so I tried to talk about that in terms of Augustine saying we are restless until we rest in thee uh, and so on. And then to think about the modern condition in those terms. That is to say, fame is a form of ontology. And to some extent, it's a form of ontology even for those who are adulating the famous, but certainly a form of ontology for the famous. And it's a false ontology, just as primitive sacrality is a false transcendence. The old sacred system, the old primitive sacred system is a false transcendence. Uh, so the system of fame, which is really an attenuated version of it because the famous are just this, either gods or just this side of being gods, and Alexander, like so many of the other uh, figures in classical uh, history, uh, saw himself as a god. He visited an Egyptian uh, shrine and, and consulted an oracle, and uh, the, the uh, feeling by historians is that he was told there that he was the s son of the sun god. And so, so fame is itself an attenuated form of deification, and the old sacred system, the deification of the old sacred system, is nothing more than, than the, you could say, to use a psychological term, the projection of the, this, the, uh, the mimetic contagion with regard to that fascinating figure. So, so, the, so the false transcendence and the false ontology really are the same thing. So, so that's what I tried to talk about, what it means to live in a world of false transcendence and false ontology and to use the story of Alexander the Great as a kind of distant mirror for seeing our own situation. Well, I want to go back to that and follow up on it a little bit. Browdy says two things I want to start with uh, and, and see where it takes us. He says, quote, Alexander was bent on defying any order that he had not created himself. And then he says... A little bit later on, what happens when there turns out to be too many Alexanders? So here they are. Alexander was bent on defying any order that he had not created himself. And what happens when there turns out to be too many Alexanders, which is the modern world? Well, I want to go a little bit off on a, 
a tangent while we still have Alexander on our plate, so to speak. Because there, there are a couple of little complications. They're hardly little complications. It's a very big complication. And I'm not sure exactly how to get into them, but I'll, so, so I'll just do it this way. Let me go back to Browdy's comment. Alexander was bent on defying any order that he had not created himself. We see this all over the place, you know. We all refuse to defer to any extant order unless we happen to judge it worthy of deference. But only on the basis of that judgment will we defer to it, never because it's there because it deserves our deference regardless of whether we think it's, you know, we've, we've decided that it's worthwhile. So this is like Kierkegaard saying, if, you, uh, if, a, if a child obeys a father because uh, he or she thinks he's a wise person, then that child knows nothing about obedience because it's still based on that, on the child's estimation of the situation. It's fundamentally an extension of the child's uh, decision and will and not an act of obedience. Well, those are big questions, but I, I just want to go back, if I can, maybe I shouldn't do this, to um, one of the leitmotifs that comes up again and again, and I, and I quote it every once in a while, and, and that's W.H. Auden's poem, A Law Like Love, in which he talks about, Auden is a very anthropological thinker, and he talks about the modern world, which is the world in which standards have been eroded precisely by this determination to, to uh, an Alexander-like determination to defy any order other than the one that someone has constructed or decided for himself. And, and Auden saw that, Auden saw that the problem was, how do you have social norms? Is it possible to have social norms in such a situation? If, I say, if somebody says, thus and so is wrong, we shouldn't do it, and somebody else says, well, you know, it's not wrong for me. I don't think it's wrong. Uh, how does one adjudicate the matter? If if everything is up for grabs, how does one adjudicate the matter? And this is becoming, and this used to be a philosophical problem. This is becoming a political problem. It's 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 a moral problem, of course, but it's it's becoming more than more than that, or more pressing than that. So here's Auden's rendition of it. It's a question about law. What is law? Now, Paul says the law is over. He's talking about the Torah. But I think there are implications for this too, of course. Auden says, law, say the gardeners is the sun. Law is the one. All gardeners obey tomorrow, yesterday, today. So everybody has their, you see, what the law is. Law is the wisdom of the old, the important grandfathers feebly scold. The grandchildren put out their treble tongue. Law is the senses of the young. Law, says the priest, with a priestly look, expounding to an unpriestly people. Law is the words in my priestly book. Law is my pulpit and my steeple. 
Law says the judge, as he looks down his nose, speaking clearly and most severely, law is, as I've told you before, law is, as you know, I suppose, law is, but let me explain it once more, law is the law. Then Auden goes on. Yet law-abiding scum, now this is where the, the, this is where the breakdown begins to occur. Law-abiding scholars write that law is neither wrong nor right. Law is only crimes punished by places and by times. Law is the clothes men wear anytime, anywhere. Law is good morning and good night. In other words, it's custom. It's what we in our culture feel, somebody else in some other cultures. In other words, it's completely cultural. Nothing transcultural. And this is where the natural law comes in. Natural law says there's something transcultural that we can, that we can identify and we must adhere to if we're going to remain human. And then he goes on. Others say law is our fate. Others say law is our state. Others say, others say law is no more. Law has gone away. And always the loud, angry crowd. Very angry and very loud. Law is we. And always the soft idiot, softly me. So those two last, of course, is, that's where it drifts. That's where the drift is, towards the loud, angry crowd and the idiot uh, who says it's me. And if you ask yourself, what in the human world is ominous? And I, I mean, we can think, well, the ozone layer and so on. But in terms of human affairs, What's ominous? It's just what Auden pointed to. The loud, angry crowd and the psychopathic nihilist with a bomb in his suitcase or something like that. You know. The soft idiot, softly me, and the loud, angry crowd. Well, <clears throat> so Guardini, Romano Guardini, writing about the, the end of the modern age, said the unbeliever will emerge from the fogs of secularism. He will cease to reap benefit from the values and forces developed by the very revelation he denies. Walter Lippmann's preface to morals had this in it too, you know, that, that uh, we abandon these moral standards or we abandon, certain, first of all, we abandon the... the uh, the tradition that gave rise to them, and then we abandon them themselves. But we, of course, were raised, we experienced a kind of cultural formation in terms of those standards. So we can abandon them in the same way that, you know, somebody who's a Rockefeller heir can, can uh, just take vacations one after another. Two or three generations later, however, there will be people who didn't grow up with that, who are only growing up with the abandonment of it. And then things have changed profoundly. You see what I mean? And that's what Guardini is saying. Uh, the unbeliever will ev eventually e emerge from the fogs of secularism and he will no longer be able to draw on these resources because his revolution will have been victorious. And the tradition that gave rise to those moral premises will be gone and the, the substantiality of moral prim, 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 principles will have been uh, compromised and so on. And then Guardini says, the new age, the coming age, will declare 
that the secularized facets of Christianity are sentimentalities. And there's a little bit of a, there's a little truth to that because in secularizing the Christian sensibilities, we romanticized them to some extent. We rationalized them. We made them into rational premises, positivism and so on. But we also romanticized them because in a, the, the Enlightenment bias is shot through with a sort of Rousseau-esque romanticism which is there in, in the notion of equality. If we were all equal, we would, just, our, we would be free and loving again. The problem is this terrible inequality, which is not true. As soon as you eliminate uh, inequalities, as soon as you eliminate s- s- those kind of hierarchical structures, people fall into crisis. Shakespeare, every... I should, this is too, too much, but virtually every play of Shakespeare's begins with the standards falling apart, the old hierarchical structure falling apart. Uh, and immediately, then that's Shakespeare's way of setting things in motion. You see, you level them. So suddenly there's no fundamental difference between Macbeth and the old king, you see, or, or, or Lear uh, gives his kingdom over to his daughters. And so you have a leveling, and then the crisis begins. Well, anyway, um, these secularized facets, when the Christian sensibilities were secularized, they were to some extent romanticized. And now, what happens according, what's going to happen, according to Guardini, is that the secularized facets of Christianity will be regarded as sentimentalities. And then he says, this declaration will clear the air. The world to come will be filled with animosity and danger, but it will be a world open and clear. In other words, when Andre Malraux says, in the 21st century, we will be religious or we will not be, the question is, what kind of religion will, we, will there be? And I would say, as the Enlightenment Project falls apart, uh, this process of secularizing the Christian sensibilities falls apart. The idea of secularity itself will disappear. In other words, uh, there, there won't be a, sec, a, a secular alternative, although it may still call itself that. My guess is that it will drift in the direction of some kind of primitive revival, and, and one of those is nihilism. Nihilism is a religious phenomenon, which I've tried to emphasize. Uh, or it will, it will go in the direction of a, of a renewed commitment to the, the historical project at the heart of which is the Judeo-Christian tradition. So I would say that, there, that the idea that we can do it in a secular way will evaporate. That, that, that was the idea that was current during the Enlightenment, and, and I think that's now over. I'm meandering around because I want to get to this one little... So you tolerate what I'm doing now because I'm trying to get back into one little vignette in Alexander's life and to explore it in terms of what it means for us in our day. And so it may seem like I'm, it's, a, it's a labyrinthine argument I'm, I'm pursuing here this morning. But before we get too far away from Auden and his concern about the collapse of, of moral norms, I want to quote something from an article by Carl Henry uh, entitled Natural Law and Nihilistic Culture. And in that article, 
Henry quotes, refers to uh, a, uh, another writer, Philip Johnson, and he quotes from Johnson and reflects on some things Johnson says. So I, I just want to, this is quotes within quotes, but here's how it goes, uh, quoting Henry. Philip Johnson writes of, quote, the ambivalence with which our contemporary legal culture regards the proposition that there exists some objective standard of right and wrong against which human legal standards can be measured. The death of God, Johnson argues, affects the total elimination of any coherent or even more than momentarily convincing ethical or legal system. And then Henry says, much as one may appeal to universal rationality as supplying the content of ethics, universally, and this is what I want to get to, universally shared norms cannot be distilled from what Johnson depicts as, quote, the un anchored, self-validating human mind. So we, we get the problem of the unanchored, self-validating human mind. That, of course, you know, is the, is the ontological problem right there. The unanchored is exactly what Gabriel Marcel was talking about when he talked about the lack of ontological moorings. And, and what comes of the lack of ontological moorings, to use de Lubach's phrase, is a waning of ontological density. Okay, I wanted to do something about I wanted to take this phrase, the unanchored, self-validating human mind, and quibble slightly with it and, and see if we can't see something about our modern condition. Henry says you cannot, um, a, you cannot arrive at a consensus ethics on the basis of rationality. I don't know if I can express this very well. One thing, a point I'd like to make is that rationality as we know it in the West is a product of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's, and it's always fundamentally, in terms of human affairs, it's a moral rationality. It's a rationality based on that as that it arises in the wake of moral misgivings. It's the, the rationality that wants to understand something that has given rise to a certain moral di discomfort. And that's the rationality of the Western world, and it's not the rationality, the old rationality of the Greco-Roman philosophical uh, enterprise. I think that's what I think, and I think that it's the Judeo-Christian tradition that in a sense clears the ground for rational discourse. So we usually have it the other way around, you know. Uh, if, if, the ration, if we insist that all of this has to be rationalized, we eliminate the very thing that makes our kind of rationality, Western rationality, morally grounded rationality, possible. So what we get is a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of uh, rationalistic discourse, but no real rationality. The the rationality that the biblical tradition gives rise to is the rationality that it informs you. For example, when you read a a story of a witch burning. And you have, these are the ancient texts, and all the ancient texts says, well, this was the, this witch poisoned the wells, and once uh, she was burned at the stake, uh, everything was fine, the plague was ended, and the community returned to, to normal. 
Every document you have says that. You have no, no contrary document. But you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's not true. And the question is, how do you know that? On the strength of what, what is the source of that rational clarity? You see what I mean? Do you know it because you've weighed certain arguments? Because it's, uh, you see what I'm saying? You know it because of the cross, fundamentally. You know it because of the rational possibilities that have been made possible by the revelation of the cross. I would say that. And that's the rationality of the world, the, re the really important rationality. And uh, without it, then it just turns to, to this to this arid discourse that goes nowhere. So, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know if that's apropos of anything. But I want to come back to this question of the unanchored, self-validating human mind. Is it true, as Johnson suggests, Philip Johnson suggests, is it true that universally shared norms cannot be distilled from the unanchored, self-validating human mind? It's true, but the exception proves the rule. There's something here, I think, of the ambivalence of, of the primitive sacred. It's true that shared norms cannot be distilled from the unanchored, self-validating human mind. But it's also true that the lack of those norms sets in motion a social crisis at the maddened culmination of which it is possible, or at least it used to be possible, for one supremely unanchored human mind to perform an act so shocking and decisive that it has self-validating effect. And that's what I want to talk about for a second. Because I, and I want to use an example in the life of Alexander. A very, a very uh, unscandalous example, but still a symbolic example in the life of Alexander. As this crisis in, no, as this normlessness became more and more of a crisis, uh, people who recognized the onset of this crisis began to ponder what to do about it. And one of the people that pondered it is a man named Carl Schmidt, who became the the legal theoretician for the Nazis. Now, Carl Schmidt is one of the. F this is all part of this elaborate thing. Carl Schmidt is one of the people that uh, that the the 89ers in Germany, this the young generation of right wing German quote unquote intellectuals. Carl Schmidt's one of the people that they are reading avidly. Now, Carl Schmidt had at the heart of his analysis of things is what he calls decisionism. And what he says is that all... It, Schmidt... One of the things about Girard is that Girard has predecessors, almost all of whom, in a certain sense, follow Nietzsche. Nietzsche is one of his predecessors. But so many of Girard's predecessors, uh, Joseph de Mestre, Carl Schmidt, these people, went more or less with Nietzsche and voted for Dionysus. They weren't voting for Dionysus. In some sense, they were these radical right-wingers. 
who were saying we have to go in this direction, otherwise all is lost. The point, and sometimes the Girardists tarred with their brush because they say, well, look, all he's seeing is what Nietzsche saw or what Demestra saw or what, uh, you know, these people saw. But that's true, except he went in the other direction, you see. He chose Christ. That's the difference. It's a huge difference. It's like saying all myths are just like the Christian story. They are, except Christian story tells it from the point of view of the victim. Well, in any event, I just mentioned that. Uh, so Carl Smith is a kind of pre-Girard character, except he chooses the old sacred system. And what he says is that if you try to... So here's a person who's looking at the, the disappearance of norms, which is one of the things that's happening in our world. We have to see that, the disappearance of norms. When, when Browdy says Alexander was bent on defying any order that he had not created himself, he's, he's giving us a distant mirror for what's happening in the modern world. So now we have a whole uh, world filled, Western world, filled with uh, the unanchored, self-validating human mind uh, trying to set its own standards. Can't. And these standards... And, no shared standard comes out of that project. Anyway, so Schmidt, among other people, looked at this situation and he said, where do we get law to begin with? Where do we get cultural standards to begin with? And he said, well, most analysis of this begin already with a cultural standard. In other words, it... We, Say Rousseau's talking about the social contract. Well, the social contract assumes that there's enough of a, a, a sense of how to get along together so that you can sit down and have a social contract. You know what I mean? First of all, you have to, there has to be enough shared norms to make possible some kind of agreement on the other norms. So, and this is what Schmidt saw. He said, every time we analyze this, we leave something unanalyzed. The, you know, the always already something. And so he said, no, you, you, you see, it all has to begin with a decisive act on the part of one person which is unprecedented and arbitrary and, and I would add, and I think this is implicit in what he says, shocking. That is to say, it has to be unprecedented or otherwise, if it was precedented, then you have the problem. There's already a culture. There's already a set of norms by which this can be judged as an okay thing. It has to be shocking. It has to be outside of all laws in order to be the founding law, in order to found, in order to be the act which founds the new order. It has to. And what is this act? We know what this act is. This act is an act of sacrificial violence. And, but it's, it's there in, in, uh, in Carl Schmitt. So that it has to be arbitrary, it has to be decisive, it has to be riveting, and it has to be unprecedented. And only then, he says, can we... And you see what... This kind of decisive act becomes the final solution in Hitler's madness. 
some kind of outrageous act like that that's going to start a new Reich in the thousand-year Reich or something. It's crazy. But it's the old sacrificial system going back to its, to its origin. Okay, now, here's the thing. The question is, what happens when there are too many Alexanders in the world? And can we start, can culture begin again with a, with a, um, uh, on the basis of an unanchored, self-validating mind? And I say, yes, if that un- unanchored, self-validating mind goes mad enough and becomes, uh, becomes the object of enough people's social fasc- fascination, that can happen. Even Carl Smith's idea of decision. Decision means to cut. Decidere means to cut. It's a sacrificial term. It first meant to cut the throat of the victim. That's how you came to decision. You know, in the ancient world, when you had a contract, you always offered a, a, a sacrificial victim to cement the deal. So that's how decisions are made, with that the knife of the... Anyway, here's the little incident in... Alexander's life that I want to reflect on a little bit. And that is, he's, he visits the city of Gordium, which is where King Midas lived. And King Midas's father had tied a wagon to a pole with the, a knot which came to be called the Gordian knot. It was the, the story and the legend are similar to in the Arthurian story of the sto- the the sword in the stone. In other words, whoever could pull the sword out of the stone would be the king. And in Gordium, whoever could untie this, this knot was, it was uh, incredibly intricate and the ends of the, of the rope were inside the knot. So it seemed impossible to do. And you know the story, of course, and that is that, uh, well, first of all, the, in Gordium, the legend was that if whoever untied this knot would rule Persia. Well, Alexander was on his way to conquer Persia. This was his great military campaign. And he stopped by Gordium, and there was the knot. And he drew his sword and cut through it. And it had never occurred to anybody that that this was a possible solution. In other words, he imposed his solution on it. I did it my way, Frank Sinatra said. You see what I mean? And suddenly, everybody is totally stunned by this. And the, and, the, and, the, and the sort of mystique that Alexander may in fact be the one to rule Persia comes up out of that. And, and pretty soon, that, his, his whole army is, in, in, is imbued with this mystique and lo and behold, they go and conquer Persia. You see what I'm saying? It, it's, a, it's a symbolic act that's just exactly what I'm talking about in terms of decisionism. Now, the reason that's relevant, the reason it's a distant mirror for us, is because we're in a world of, of this confusion and uncertainty, moral normlessness. And I would say in that world, all kinds of things begin to be churned up. And I would say the old reflexes, social and psychological reflexes, that move towards some kind of sacrificial resolution are are uh, awakened. And one of these will be towards that. This 
this idea that if I could do something absolutely outrageous, uh, we would we would end the old order and begin a new one, and it's completely. Uh, I mean, there are there are people, no doubt, that are that are uh, annotating their Nietzsche and their Demestra and their Carl Schmidt in order to think it through rationally. But most people, it's coming up as an impulse, you see. And that's certainly the way it is uh, at the popular level, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Now, let me give you an example of that. The French Revolution is a classic example of the attempt to go to the heart of the old cultural system, do away with it, and start new. And in the French Revolution, it was no time before the guillotines started clacking away. At first it was, look, all we have to do is cut the king's head off. And it was argued widely by the Jacobins that only when we cut the king's head off will it be possible to start a new order. And that was, that, that was one of those statements that was just made. It was just, well, it's obvious. We can't start a new order until we cut the king's head off. Now, somebody could have said, well, what if we, what if we send him to you know, Siberia? What if we put him in jail for the rest of his life? What if we... Do, I mean, in other words, no. It never occurred to the, to the, to the uh, most fervent of the Jacobins that there was any solution other than killing the king. Had, the, had he gone to Siberia, they would have had to go get him, you see, because they knew that you couldn't start a new order without killing the king. Well, remember this is happening in a Christianized world. Not to say it was a Christian world, but it was a world under the influence. So they cut the king's head off, and the machine that they cut the king's head off with, you could say, they couldn't turn it off. It was like the sorcerer's apprentice. They turned the machine on, it cut the king's head off, and then clackety, 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 clack, they couldn't turn it off. This is the world we live in. This is what we have to realize. That you switch it on, you, you may not be able to turn it off again because all the sacrificial appetites have been awakened, but there's no death that will satisfy them. There's no death that will be cathartic enough to satisfy that sacrificial appetite. So heads started rolling right and left, you see. Thousands of people killed. Guillotines being constructed and, and put to work all over the place. Really unbelievable, the, the, uh, eventually the reign of, of terror. 